Let's dive in. Um, last week's sermon was an interesting one um, at my house. I alluded to this a little bit last week, uh, but I wrote my message on Saturday night. And when I was done, I shared it with Esther like I always do, and I went to bed. And uh, so when I woke up, the very first question I asked is the question I ask almost every Sunday morning. Did you get a chance to read my message yet? And this week, Esther paused, kind of a long, pregnant pause. And... Uh, and the pause concerned me, so I immediately look over, uh, and she had this look on her face that was a little bit knowing, a little bit uh, maybe even excited, and very apologetic. And uh, and so I was like, "Was it not good?" Like, and uh, and but before I gave you her answer to that question, "Was it not good?" Um, let's go back a week. So I usually spend my Mondays in commentaries. Uh, I read what all the old dusty guys from the past have to say about each week's passage. I read what Bible translators have to say about it and what nuances might be in the original language. I read Jewish commentators, see what they have to say about it. And I always read my favorite kind of uh, New Testament um, or uh, contemporary Bible scholars see what they have to say about it. And then I read anything I can find on the, the history and context of the passage. So basically Mondays I take notes all day long. It's usually about 10 hours, 12 hours of just submersive study. Some weeks, by the time I'm done with the commentaries, um, I already know where we're going for the week. Like I've already, it's already kind of shaped out. And, uh, and if it's a great week, I might even start writing late Sunday afternoon. Uh, but most Mondays I study till dinner and then, um, and then I leave Monday with nothing but a big pile of notes that I can sift through and, and study throughout the week. Uh, well this Monday, last Monday, so not this last Monday, but the one before, um, I knew Uh, for a couple of weeks. And he calls me on Tuesday and says, hey, can you meet on Wednesday? And I've been wrestling with some stuff um, concerning my role here as pastor of Open Table and whether or not I'm doing as good a job as I could be doing and, um, and how to manage some of the changes coming up and some of the things. Uh, and I just had to juggle everything. And, and, uh, and I wanted another voice in this discussion. So, um, uh, so of course, we start talking. We, we meet for coffee. We're talking. And, and he immediately goes to my purpose. He was like, have you articulated your purpose, like specifically, and written it down so that you can communicate it in such a way that it, that it affects your daily decisions? And he has no idea what I studied on Monday. So this is on Wednesday. He's like, dude, you need to hone in on your purpose. Uh, now, uh, and so, um, so I put all this in the boiler to just stew, you know, that it was really weird that on Monday I'm deciding we're going to go to purpose. Now this guy's like picking on me about my purpose specifically. And, uh, and Esther and I had talked about this discussion a little bit, but nothing as to how it affected my sermon. So Saturday, you know, uh, after kind of mulling over all these notes and everything all week, I sit down and write my sermon um, that I'd started on Monday. And what was funny was I'd started writing, but I couldn't even recognize any of it. I'd written a whole intro, and I couldn't even remember how I intended to use it. Like, it was like reading someone else's writing. It was so bizarre. So much had changed throughout the week that I had to scrap everything I'd written and, and kind of start over. And as I started writing the message, I could feel like it going two directions. I could either 
analyze purpose with my head and exegete it from scripture and articulate it accurately. Or I could get into my own guts and talk about what purpose does to our soul. And I opted to go the mental route. <laughs> it was Saturday morning for, or Saturday night, for God's sake. The other one felt like deep waters. And I was like, I don't even know if I can get into all that on a Saturday night. I went with the, with the mental approach. And I go to bed. I share it with Esther, go to bed. Fast forward back to that Sunday morning. I ask Esther, is the message not good? And this is what she says to me. It's fine. I mean, it's good. It's just really academic. It doesn't sound like you. (laughs) She has no idea. I just had this tug of war between whether to go with my brain or whether to go with my guts. And she's like, yeah, it's just really academic. Doesn't really sound like you. And then walks out of the room. And I'm like, what? Hold up a second. Like she threw a grenade in the bed and was like, I'm going to go make coffee. You know, like, so I'm like, hold on. So I chased her through the house. What do you mean academic? What, what, What was academic? And so I kind of freak out till she tells me, you know, what was going on. And, and so the next thing you know, I'm at my desk, late for worship practice, trying to put some guts in my sermon. And uh, so Sunday night, so I come preach. Anytime you preach from your guts, it's, it's exhausting. And so Sunday night, we're sitting in, in our kitchen area. I'm on the couch, just kind of lounging. And I say jokingly, I want to go back to Bible college where I'm just teaching in a classroom, a nice, clean classroom environment, nothing but the nice, sterile text in my brain, um, to which my wife lets out this rather unladylike guffaw of laughter, which grabs two of my daughter's attention. So Esther, having found an audience, says, your dad, when he was teaching in Bible college, after studying some sterile passage for his class, walks into our bedroom and says, I only married you so I could have sex. (laughs) And for the record, that is not at all what I said. That is not how that went down, which I tried to explain to my daughters, who still aren't talking to me. And uh, I'm still trying to get someone in my house to let me exegete 1 Corinthians 7 with them so that I can explain to them my process of thinking and how that's not what I was saying 17 years ago. Um, And I don't have time to break that down for everybody today, but if I feel like you're judging me, I will do it. I don't care what time we get to lunch. I will go. But believe it or not, this tension between academic work of theology and and the nitty-gritty soul work of pastoral ministry is a really, really old tension. Uh, in fact, um, for years I didn't get it. And, uh, and I would read about all my old favorite dead theologians and, and kind of past pastor authors. Uh, and they would write about hitting this fork in their, in their spiritual walk where they would have to decide between theological work and pastoral work. And I was always confused because I was like, I thought pastors did theology all the time. And I thought, I don't know what theologians do if they're not doing pastoral ministry, too. Like, I didn't really get it. Um, but that night, when I took my perfectly reasonable um, and logical sound exegesis of 1 Corinthians 7 into my bedroom uh, and found out it doesn't fly there, I realized that, uh, that there is a difference between theology and pastoral work. And that difference is actually going to bear on today's study. We're in our series titled The Game of Life, where we're looking at, um, in light of Easter, what resurrection life is supposed to look like. Um, It turns out that it's an age-old question that everyone from Adam and Eve to the disciples has been asking. And we established that when humanity chose to go its own way in the garden, 
some major relationships died. Uh, two weeks ago, we did move one step up where we talked about this resurrected relationship with God and how, how that looks. Most specifically, it looks like grace. And then last week, in one step in, we talked about what a resurrected relationship with ourselves might look like. Namely, it looks like purpose. And if you miss those, I do recommend jumping on the app or the website or the YouTube channel to catch them. Well, this week we're going to be talking about the relationship with the other. Um, and we're titling this message, Move One Step Out. And once again, we're going to look at one of Jesus' parables where he digs into this relationship. Uh, we're going to be reading in Luke 10. If you want to read along, we're going to start in verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher... What should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said. Do this and you'll live. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. And when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. And he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these uh, three would you say was neighbor to the man who attacked the bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. This is the word of the Lord. We call this the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is an amazingly condescending uh, title, which cracks me up because it has this qualifying adjective in front of it. Jesus didn't name the parable. We did that much later. But can you imagine if somebody was like, hi, this is Chris. He's actually a smart carpenter. Like, you know what I mean? Or this is Esther. She's actually a good female driver. You know, see how kind of, like this is a good Samaritan. Like it's kind of a condescending title, which is funny. But um, anyway, it, it, it's uh, it's likely Jesus's most famous parable, and uh, and we had to treat with this one because of the reason he gives this parable. Uh, it says this: this expert in in, uh, in religious law says, "Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life?" So. Holy cow, he's like smack dab in the middle of our series. What does eternal life look like? That's what we're playing with in this study. Uh, what do I have to do to have eternal life? So before I dig in, let's do a little bit of uh, work on the background that's going into this. This story falls into Luke's travel narrative. If you don't know what the travel narrative is, uh, go back two weeks and listen to that message because I spent probably too much time explaining the travel narrative. But suffice it to say, Jesus is in Samaria when he teaches this passage. So he's he had left Galilee and he's going down to Jerusalem and in the middle of Samaria. He is in Samaria when he teaches the parable of the good Samaritan. 
in fact, we, we have a tendency to, to, when we think about this parable, to, to assume that Jesus chose a Samaritan as the good guy, mostly to annoy the Jews that were listening because they picked their worst enemy. But it could also be that he chose a Samaritan as the good guy because he wanted to draw in and appeal to some of the Samaritans listening because he's in their hometown. And so it might be that he chose his cast of characters for their sake. We don't really know. Uh, but we do know he's in Samaria when he preaches this. And, uh, and a lawyer, or the, the, this translation says a, an expert in religious law, asked him this question. And this is important because this guy is a professional theologian. That's who this guy is, this lawyer. Uh, the way the power structure was set up in Israel at the time was there was a bunch of different parties all kind of competing for power. Uh, you had the Pharisees, who we bump into all the time, who, who were um, this populist group, who were uh, mostly rabbis and teachers, uh, who were devoted to Torah, but mostly devoted to the way Torah was to be lived out. Um, they saw part of their duty was to tell people how to live Torah. So they didn't do a ton of translating, more just application. So here's how you actually live out Torah. Then you have the Sadducees, who were the, the, the rich guys. They were the aristocracy. They were the... Um, they, they were the, kind of the power structure in Israel at the time. And so they mostly used Torah to insulate their and ensure their own wealth and power. So that was kind of their position. Um, and then you had the priests and Levites. This was a very interesting group because it was a genetic group. The Levites were descendants of Jacob's son, Levi. And so... Um, this and then the priestly family was even more unique because they were also Levites, but from the descendant of Aaron. So one one line within this bigger family group. So this is a this is a genetic line of people. Um, so almost like royalty. This was just handed down. It had nothing to do with how you behaved or what you did or what you even thought about Torah. You were just automatically one of these by because of the family you were born into. And then you had the lawyers, which were also called scribes, sometimes experts of religious law, other times. And these guys were hired by the temple elites. So by the Sadducees, the priests, and the Levites. They hired these guys um, to basically copy and study and interpret scripture. Um, and they didn't do it like the Pharisees did, where you were thinking about application. They did it just to make sure what the scripture said was accurate. So they, they studied it from a theological perspective, not necessarily a livable perspective. And so, right smack dab in the middle of Samaria, one of these kind of dusty theological types comes to Jesus and asks him a dusty theological question. So they're basically like, what must I do to have eternal life? And this is where it gets interesting, because um, as we established a, a, a few weeks ago, Israel at this time doesn't really have a developed understanding of an afterlife like we do now, like a heaven. It hadn't really been developed theologically in Israel now. They were, for about 200 years, they've been wrestling with this idea of resurrection from Ezekiel 37. And so they, they knew that God was going to resurrect. They really didn't have an understanding of what that would look like. Not like we do, where when you die, you're immediately with God um, in heaven. They didn't really have that yet, or at least no indication of it in any writing that they had kind of developed this theology yet. But they're wrestling with the idea of resurrection. So it would have been crazy unlikely likely this guy is asking, how do I go to heaven when I die? That's most likely not what he was saying. Maybe he was saying, hey, how do I become some of those dry bones in Ezekiel's thing? Um, or it could have been that he was talking like Moses, like, how do I experience this God life, this, this blessed life, this fruitful, full life? How do I tap into that? Um, 
But whatever he's asking for, Jesus does something fun here. He kind of enters the lawyer's arena. He says, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Now, this guy comes to Jesus as a rabbi. The rabbi generally had authority to answer these questions directly. Um, in fact, there was a whole traceable line of credibility that they called authority, where one rabbi would train you and you would come in his authority. So they asked Jesus all the time, by what authority do you teach these things? They're basically going, what's your your education? Who trained you up? What's your line of, whose name do you speak in? Um, who taught you and validated you to go out as a rabbi? Um, but And the rabbis knew when they gave an opinion, they were just kind of one voice amongst the whole rabbinical weight, but they still had the authority to just answer directly. They don't really have to, um, to qualify much. Um, only this time, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus uh, turns it back on the lawyer, and he goes, almost like he's saying, my, interpre- my interpretation is not what matters here. What do you think? What do you think the scripture says about how to get... To heaven, And the, the lawyer actually answers great. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The guy totally nails it. Jesus has actually answered the same question this exact same way before. So either this guy has heard Jesus teach before and was playing on that, or the guy has done a great job of studying the Old Testament and has managed to parse out the really important stuff. But he answers perfectly. Um, either way, Jesus commends him and then says, right, do this and you'll live. Like, go. Um, now remember, the original question is, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, do this, do Torah. Love God, love people, and you'll live. Go. And instantly, I love that Jesus doesn't say you'll live eternally, because I have a feeling he was basically like, whatever idea you have of eternal life is probably wrong, but that's not worth getting into. <laughs> Just do this and you'll live. Um, and Jesus gives him a straight answer to his uncomplicated question. What must I do? Do Torah. There you go. Um, and please hear a little bit of irony in Jesus' voice when he says this, because I think Jesus knows there's more coming. And, and sure enough, as soon as Jesus answered, the lawyer has a follow-up question. And I think this is what Jesus was really expecting. Because up till now, Jesus is kind of short and clipped. Like, like how, what do I do to be saved? I don't know. What do you think? Well, love God and love people. Yeah, do that. That's really all that's happened here. This really short, clipped conversation. And then the guy comes back. The man wanted to justify his action and says, and who is my neighbor? And this is such a, a rich exchange here. Let's recap a little bit. Um, the guy asks Jesus a question. You tell, and Jesus says, you tell me. The guy tells him. He says, yeah, do that. And then the guy says, whoa, 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 hold on a minute. It cannot be that easy. <laughs> it's his answer. Like, that's what I love about this. Like, he's the one. You ever do this with people? You're like, I don't know. What do you think? And they tell you what they think. And you're like, yeah, that. And they're like, well, it can't be that easy. And you're like, you gave me the answer. What? Which is kind of funny. Um, I've been having a lot of these conversations too lately where somebody's like, I, they feel stuck in their spiritual life because they're like, I wrestle with this. And I wrestle with this. And I wrestle with this. And, and you start kind of answering their questions. And well, what about the, uh, and next thing you know, 20 exchanges in, you find the real thing that's bugging them. Like, yeah, I just, I don't want to surrender. And you're like, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? You've built, you've built up this huge, you know, facade of what's bugging you. And you've got this real thing underneath it. That that's the real question. Which, by the way, let me let you in on a little secret. Most of us um, use our frivolous questions as smoke screens because we don't want the answer to the real question. So that's, that's for free. If you can't say amen, at least say ouch. 
Um, anyway, I personally think the reason Jesus is so short and clipped with this guy is because he's been waiting for this question. He's been waiting for the real question. Because um, this is when Jesus settles in. Up till now, he's just been almost kind of speaking over his shoulder at this guy. Now he, he settles into the discussion. Tells this story of this famously dangerous road. Josephus, in the first century, who was a historian, um, in one of his histories calls this the road of blood. Um, it was a well-known dangerous road. There's actually records of, for, uh, spanning about 100 years of Rome having to send garrisons of soldiers in to try and clean this road up. Whenever the outcry would get too loud about how dangerous this one strip of road was, Rome would send people in um, to try and clean it up. Like This is a notoriously dangerous road. Everybody knows it's a bad place. Jesus tells the story of this traveler who's ambushed by robbers. And this would have provoked an emotional note, but probably not the one we think of. Um, anyone traveling the, the road of blood alone deserves to get ambushed. Like most of the people listening were probably like, well, yeah, dummy. Who travels the road of blood by themselves? Of course you got ambushed. Um, Josephus describes the way that when you would move in a party, the front rank would carry swords already drawn. Uh, then they'd put the cargo in the middle and the back rank would also have swords drawn and everybody would carry shields to protect from archers. I mean, he was very descriptive on how you had to travel the road of blood. Like this is, everybody knows you don't just go wandering down the road of blood by yourself. So Jesus tells the story of this guy traveling alone, and I think the crowd was probably chuckling, like, well, of course he got ambushed, dummy. Um, but then a priest and a Levite come by, and each pass, they actually go across the road to get by this guy. And this is where something interesting has happened. Because Jesus could have picked anybody to show up in his story. He could have picked a, a Pharisee and a Sadducee or, or a rabbi and a zealot. Um, he could have, uh, he had all kinds of groups he could have chosen from, but he chooses the lawyer's bosses. He chooses the guys that this scribe works for, um, to kind of play this role. He picks a, a priest and a Levite. Um, whether he was trying to draw this guy in by going, hey, look at the team you're on. Look at the people that you work for. Or he may have just been attacking this guy directly. We don't really know. Um, but, but he picks people um, who had lineage. That's the other funny part. These people validated their position um, by going back generations. Uh, these aren't Pharisees who depend on their own personal holiness for their position. These aren't zealots who are willing to go to war and die for Israel at the drop of a hat. These are the dogs who have papers. You know what I mean? Those are the, these are the real... Uh, the people who say, do you know who my family is? Like, that's these people. Like, they're the, they're the elite. Um, but the cooler thing is, they had a hundred reasons to pass this guy up. Um, they, if you want to go Torah, this guy is, is half dead. There's all kinds of ceremonial clean, uh, cleanliness rules that, that make it where you may not want to touch this guy. If he dies on you, now you gotta be out of the temple for a while. Um, there's also in the Talmud, there's a rule that basically says if you engage in a problem and you can't see it through to the end, then it's probably better not to engage. That's from the Talmud. So they could have been trying to obey that one. Or it could have been a trap. They're like, nobody walks the road of blood by themselves. Of course, this guy, I'm not going to go over there and then get ambushed myself. Like there was a hundred reasons for these two to act this way. And I, I assume the lawyer would have loved to have had that discussion. Like, 
at, at what point do you have to help a stranger? Let's dive into the Bible. Like, this is the kind of question this guy probably would have liked. Let's exegete that. Let's see what we got. Um, but they doesn't. Jesus kind of teases toward it, but nobody goes there. But the other thing you don't hear is you don't hear the lawyer going, my bosses would never do that. You know, nobody seems... At this point, nobody seems upset with the story. It seems like everybody probably assumes that was reasonable behavior. You don't stop on the road of blood to, to help somebody. I don't think the only shocker in this story would have been that it was a Samaritan did it. I think they would have been shocked that anybody stopped because you wouldn't do that on the road of blood. I think most people listening uh, would have been playing along like, yeah, good call. Like, phew, they, they, they kept themselves out of trouble. That's a good priest. That's a good Levite. They showed wisdom. Uh, but all we know is that um, the first two pass by and then Jesus brings in his hero, the good Samaritan, to save the day. Uh, and I think listeners would have, would have been shocked that a rabbi you know, would use a Samaritan to do this. And, uh, and, and Jesus does pick the one guy that this lawyer, or at least this lawyer's bosses, would have definitely hated. Uh, and again, this may have been to, to encourage and draw in the other Samaritans listening, but this is definitely a twist that nobody would have been expecting from a rabbi. Um, anybody here like postmodern, the postmodern narrative in movies? Anybody know what that is? Any, any Sopranos people? Come on, don't make me the only heathen. Sopranos, Sons of Anarchy, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, Dexter, any of those? Okay, I got a couple. Whew. There's a ton more. It's kind of funny. We consider this a new thing. Um, and it's easiest to see in superheroes. If you go, because the postmodern narrative started in about the 60s. And if you go back to the earliest superheroes, it was like Superman and Captain America. Like, they're good guys because they're good guys. Like, they're, they're superheroes. They save people because they have good moral character. But then, as you get along, the, the superheroes get a little darker. And, and they're a little, and they're not always that good. You know, they're kind of vigilantes. And they're, and all the bad guy, all the villains now have a complicated past and you kind of understand why they're bad and so as the superheroes progress the good guys aren't quite as good and the bad guys aren't quite as bad or at least they're understandable why they're bad and we and we don't like really clean um good guys and bad guys anymore and uh and uh and it gets all the way down to where you and I, I've done this. I've watched a couple of these shows and you find yourself really rooting for somebody terrible. Like, this is a bad person. And I still don't want him to get caught for some reason. Like, it, it really kind of tangles you up. It's not healthy. Um, but I think Jesus nailed the postmodern narrative in like 33 AD. Like, way before we did. Um, Jesus picks the worst person you could think of to play the hero in this story. Um, the cream of the crop are the bad guys, the, the, the royal elite uh, that everyone looks up to are the jerks in the story. Jesus totally twisted up. But the best part is what he does after his story. He says, now, which of the three would you say is the neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. Uh, Jesus does what he's been doing since this conversation began. He turns it back on the lawyer. He says, okay, you ask the question, who's my neighbor? Answer your own question. He keeps turning it back to let the lawyer answer his own question. And before we can give that answer, I do got to give a little bit of background to this question about who's my neighbor, because this actually was a real question of the day. Um, Torah was fairly specific at explaining who your neighbor was. Um, it was outlined in the Torah who a neighbor to a Jew was. And it was basically other Jews, for sure. There were certain rules of the way you had to treat other Jews. Um, but it was also the foreigner living in your land. There was this thing, there was several verses in the Old Testament 
You have to be kind to the foreigner living in your land. Basically, some people would want to move into Israel. It's a good land and they've got good trade. And, and so they'd want to move in. And, there was, and so there's this question, how do we treat those people? They're not Jews. And, and the Torah was pretty clear. No, you have to treat them like a neighbor too. Like, so basically, and there was even in the Talmud a little later, they were discussing, what about the people who lived here when we took over that we didn't quite get rooted out? Are they neighbors? And the consensus in the Talmud was, yeah, anybody living in the border of Israel is a neighbor. You have to treat them like a neighbor. And so, so that was fairly defined. It was pretty established early. Uh, but by Jesus' time, this question gets considerably more complicated. Because Israel is now a Roman province. And sometimes Rome just gave land to people in Israel, to, to Romans. And, and they sent soldiers and, and, and things down there to kind of work as police and overlords, you know, and they got some land, you know, when they came in. You had merchants that, that were just given land. You had people who were exiled from the city of Rome who had to have a place to live. So they came down and lived in Israel. And so by the time, you know, they're discussing this in Jesus' day, they're like, surely Moses didn't mean everybody that lives in Israel. I mean, holy cow, some of these people are here just to keep their foot on us. Like, and are they our neighbor? Like, it was a it was a major hot button debate in Jesus' time to define who the Torah made you love, and so they were basically like Moses could have never predicted the, what we're dealing with right now. He thought people who want to live in Israel and be nice to us have to be our neighbor, but these are like overlords. Surely they're not. Surely we don't have to love them the way we love God. So, this is a well-known debate in the time, and this lawyer walks up, and this is the debate he wants to have. What do I have, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And I think Jesus knows this kind of theological discussion the lawyer really wants to have is underneath all that. So what does Jesus do? He creates this juxtaposition between the purest of purebloods that trace their lineage all the way back to Levi. These are the clearest and most obvious Neighbors in Israel, the people who know their people. And he sets them beside the, the mixed bloods. Or if you're a Harry Potter fan, the mud bloods. <laughs> this lost Samaritan, this mutt who has no idea who his people are. The lawyer's most obvious genetic neighbors with the least likely to be considered such. And Jesus' answer is why I brought up this tension between the theological and the pastoral work. And frankly, it's why I'm a pastor, even though I feel that that tug toward the safety and predictability of books and and clean theological study. Jesus' answer to this guy who comes up uh, armed, ready for a theological debate about Torah and exactly how far you can stretch a text and, and where you might find the loopholes so that you can, so you can say that you obey Torah but not actually have to live it. That's the talk this guy wants to have. Like, where can I find the loopholes? I want to be true to the text, but I also don't want to obey it. And Jesus basically tells him this. In a nutshell parable of the Good Samaritan is this. Any theology, no matter how beautiful and logical and provable it may be, if it doesn't help a beat-up guy on the side of the road, 
it is wrong theology. Period. And I would add, any theology that doesn't help you raise your kids is wrong theology. Any theology that isn't useful to you on your worst day is wrong theology. Any theology that doesn't cause you to change the way you are at work is wrong theology. Any theology that doesn't have an actual impact on your world where you live every day is wrong theology. And of course, any theology that sends you into your bedroom announcing you only got married for sex is absolutely wrong theology. Good theology has to be able to put shoes on and walk around. There's a debate in theological circles very similar to this tension. We call it orthodoxy or orthopraxy. If you want your seminary words for today. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is a Greek word that means right thinking or right belief. Orthopraxy means right living or right practice. And these two, we often shorthand to faith and works. Is it more important what I believe or is it more important what I do? And somehow these two have created a ton of division in the church. It's absolutely crazy. I don't want to step into all that debate today, but I will say this. This is what I believe, and you you can feel free to disagree with me. But there is simply no amount of good that you can do, no threshold of good deeds that you can reach. There's just no possible way that you can, by your own effort, earn God's favor, which includes heaven. You just can't do it. God's favor is given freely as a beautiful gift of grace through the precious blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. When you believe that he did that for you. Period. But, but, any faith or belief or theology that doesn't affect the way you act, and I simply have to question if it's good, if it's good theology. I have to question if your theology is right. If it doesn't affect your life, I wonder if you really believe right. Because orthodoxy and orthopraxy are not supposed to be separate. Right thinking and right living go together. Now, when you hear me say right living, don't think I'm talking about that list of do's and don'ts. No cussing, smoking, gambling, dancing, all that stuff. When Jesus bumped into the people who had reduced their orthopraxy down to do's and don'ts, he was like, ah, yeah, Fine, you should have done those things, but you forgot the weightier matters like mercy and justice and faith. Like, there's, there's more orthopraxy that you're missing. It's not just the do's and don'ts. Don't hear that. But believe it or not, even if we do get our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy in line, we're still missing an important piece of the puzzle. I think it's the key piece. If we get our right thinking and our right living in line... And we don't have this tension of, is it more important what I do or more important what I believe? Blah, blah, blah. There's still a piece we're missing. And I think it's actually hidden in this story that I like. There's a key feature in the heart of this story. The, then the, a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. The guy felt compassion. 
Up to this point, Jesus told every step of the three people who came by the exact same. They all three came along. They all three saw the wounded man, but two of them crossed the road and went by. The Samaritan, he had this line like it's a motive, says he felt something. Now here's the deal. Believing something to be true or, or, or appropriate doesn't mean you actually feel it. Also, you can't discipline a feeling in. You can't make yourself or discipline yourself to feel something. And yet I think this is the key. The only reason orthodoxy and orthopraxy are so controversial is first, because you can have orthopraxy and not have orthodoxy. You can do the right things. You can make people do the right things. And they still don't believe. And that's a problem. That's actually the state that Israel was in when Jesus showed up. They believed a lot of the right things, or did a lot of the right things. They just didn't have the belief right, and so they missed Jesus. But you can also have orthodoxy and not have orthopraxy. They get tangled up because you can, you can be given a list of things to believe. This is what is true. And you assent to those. Okay, fine. Those are true. I'll believe it. And it's still not... You can have all the right information and it's still not change the way you live. So in the church, we have this tendency to fight over what's more important, right living or right thinking, right believing. But I think the answer that we're missing... And you have to go back to some of the older theologians to find this, which is really sad because we're not really having this debate anymore. But they used to all the time. They used to have three things that make up, uh, that make up what they would call sanctification. Back then, the, 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 the triune sanctification is what they used to call it. It's this whole Greek word that, that, is, that we call orthopathy. Orthopathy. Right affections or right feeling. So in Christian debates today, we wrestle with whether it's our beliefs that are important or whether it's our actions that are important. But, the, but the, the, the story makes it feel like the gospel should change the way you feel. It should actually change the way you feel. It should change the way you feel about God. It should change the way you feel about sin. It should change the way you feel about other people. In fact, we have this tendency to spend a lot of time focusing on the nuances of the word love. Like it, it's a, if, if you've been in church long, you've heard us talk about that. There's four Greek words for love that almost always get translated love. They're storge, phileo, eros, and agape. Storge is natural affections. It's what you just have for your kid because it's your kid. Or when you see a puppy, that feeling you get, that's storge. It's just, it's like it's wired in there. None of us look at a puppy and, and like gross. Like, no, we all, like, like things happen. Like that's storge. It's natural affection. Phileo is, is, is to enjoy someone. It's, it's friendship love. It's, to, it's, a, it's an emotional attachment. It's, I really enjoy and I feel good when I'm with this person. That's phileo. Eros is erotic love or lust. It's, just, it's like a physical attraction, like a, like a hunger. But it can also be platonic. It's not just uh, er, like, uh, like sexual. It can also be like those times when you just like somebody so much you want to be with them all the time and got, consume their time. That's, that's considered eros. And then agape is, is the God love. It's, it's when you care for someone's interests so much that even if you have to hurt yourself for them to be happy and healthy, you would do it. That's agape love. But the problem is 
we dissect these all the time in Christianity. We're like, we, we pull these apart because we, we really want to strive for agape and to love people with true love and blah, blah. But we forget that all four of these are anchored in a deep desire to be connected to someone else. They're all, they're all rooted in the same thing. We're created to bear the image of God who is a perfect community, who never experiences loneliness. And we have this deep emotional desire to connect. And it's, and it's why all, all four of these are love. And, they, and it's something we should not only do, but feel. I think if we weren't broken, if, if, we, weren't, uh, if we weren't wounded, we wouldn't just have to do love. We would feel it for our fellow humans. Like something in us, that orthopathy would be that right feeling would automatically be there. We'd see our fellow human and we would just care for them from our guts. In fact, we talk about these broken relationships with the other. We base that definition on the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam pushed himself away from Eve. He was like, she, she gave it to me to eat. He created distance and started to blame Eve. And we, we, we compare that to one chapter before when God presented Adam with Eve. He was like, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. From this day on, the two shall be one. Like when, as soon as he met Eve, he wanted this connectedness and this unity. And there was no right thinking in that. He was, I don't think Adam was like, well, you know, she was taken from my ribs. So it makes sense that we should be together. So, it, you know, it makes sense to my brain. And it didn't take much orthopraxy at the time. There wasn't much right living. He had a feeling in his gut that she, that she belongs with me. We belong together. And that is the thing that I think was broken. That orthopathy. When Adam sinned, something in that feeling toward Eve, his orthopraxy was fine. They stayed married, had kids. It's not like he left her. Like, you made me eat the wrong apple. I'm out of here. No. <laughs> He kept serving as her husband. He lived out his life with her. But something in that orthopathy, in that feeling for her, had died, had changed. He no longer wanted to be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The two shall become one. So you could argue that it's orthopathy that was broken when we sinned. We no longer felt right any longer. Our feelings were suddenly broken. Jesus seems to be saying that what set the Samaritan apart was this. When he saw the man, he felt compassion. I'm sure the Samaritan had some sort of conviction driving him. And Jesus made it clear that his actions were commendable. He had the right belief. He had the right actions. But it all seemed to be driven by the fact that he felt something. Now, how on earth do we change the way we feel? Especially in a way that allows us to bring together orthodoxy and orthopraxy the way the Samaritan did. Right belief and right action. You remember how we've been spending so much time in Ezekiel 37, this valley of dry bones for the last couple of weeks? This, this passage that kind of drove the first century Jews to think about resurrection, that, that Ezekiel stood over this valley of dry bones and he said, 
you know, speak to it and watch it start to come back to life. And we've been kind of anchoring ourselves in this. Like we want God to begin to rattle something in our souls and, and bring life to us. Well, just before the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 36, and remember, we added the chapters, so this wouldn't have been a different chapter. It would have just been the part of the story right before the Valley of Dry Bones. It says this, For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. I will sprinkle you clean. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey them. So right before the passage that drove the first century Jews to consider what resurrection might be, you have God promising not just right information so that they can begin to to obey Torah. They had the right information. They had Torah. It was right there. The right information was at their disposal the whole time. No, this passage said that, that God told them, you need a new heart. Your heart is stony and stubborn. You need a tender and responsive heart. In fact, even more than that, you need my spirit in you. In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus the Pharisee, he calls it being born again or born from above. But God points Ezekiel uh, to the fact that you, you can't feel the way you're supposed to feel because your heart is stony and stubborn. If you want to feel what you're supposed to feel, if you want orthopathy, you need heart surgery and the Holy Spirit. You can acknowledge all the right facts. You can spend all your time trying to do the right things. And you might even make a huge difference, a huge impact with your good behavior. But still, nothing is really different. What made the Samaritan different was what he felt. He felt something that comes from a tender and responsive heart. So the first thing that I think we have to to draw from this passage, as we consider what a resurrected life might look like, especially concerning the other, because that's what the lawyer was asking. How do I have life? I want life. Where do I get life? It has to start with God. We've been talking every week about how these broken relationships are joined in ways that it makes them hard to take apart and talk about sometimes. And that, that's true of this week too. You cannot love the other until you've run to God in Jesus Christ and, and asked for a new heart. Or another way of saying it is you can't have a restored relationship with the other unless you have a restored relationship with God. But once God does give us a new heart and gives us His Holy Spirit, changing us from the inside out so that we can have genuine compassion, we can feel what we're supposed to feel, which includes hating the things we're supposed to hate and loving the things that God loves. There's, there's so much in that. It's not just obedience. Then we're free to actually do love. Which is so important because just like theology is, 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 if it's no good and it doesn't change the way you live, is bad theology. Love that doesn't show up is no love. 
Love that doesn't reach out and act is no love at all. Romans 5 says that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. He didn't send a prophet to tell us he loves us. He showed it. Love did something. Real love shows up. How do we respond to this? First, let me say this, um, because I haven't done this for a while. This is a confession I used to make all the time. But hi, my name is Chris, and I'm a hypocrite. I like to do that every once in a while, because even though I like to tell my own personal stories, I don't actually preach from my own life. I try to preach from the Bible, which means I have to preach all kinds of stuff that I'm terrible at. Because if I just preached what I'm good at, we'd run out of material real fast. So I have to preach things that I'm really bad at because I'm trying to preach the Bible. So with that admission out of the way, let me say, I'm the king of saying I love you. I love saying I love you. I like people to hear the words. I want to say the words. I like the words to just be out in the universe. I love you. I told Esther I loved her after we were dating for like two weeks. She said thank you. So that was awesome. I'm great at telling my wife I love you. I say it all the time. I don't always show it well. I mean, I'm not a mean guy or anything. I'm not like a bully. But too often I I, I walk across on the other side of the street rather than showing real care. The only difference is I'm not like the priest and the Levite because I say I love you as I walk by. But love that doesn't show up is no love at all. No matter what your words are saying. I think the way that I would love to respond to this message is, is to find yourself in the story of God. Specifically in two roles. First, play the role of the Samaritan. Put yourself in that role today. Who needs you to show up this week? A friend? Your spouse, your kids, your boss, the person that really annoys you, but you know they're crying out for someone to see them. Who's on the side of the road in your life praying that you feel compassion and stop? But before you can play that role, you got to play the other one. You got to be the, the beat up, broken traveler. Because ultimately, our good Samaritan is Jesus, and we know that. When we were bloody and naked and robbed empty-handed by our sin, he cared for us and healed us and provided for us. In short, he loved us. I believe until you see yourself as the wounded traveler, you'll never get to play the Samaritan. So wherever you are in your faith journey today, ask God for a new heart. Ask him for healing, for oil and wine and a donkey to carry you for a while and a place to rest and provision to do all that. But also make sure and ask him for a tender heart. That's the key. Ask to be born again. I don't care if you've been a Christian for a hundred years. What can it hurt? Ask to be born again. Give me a tender heart. Let me feel what I'm supposed to feel. I can obey. I can try all day to obey you, and that's great. But I want to feel it in my guts. 
So I think we just need to go to God. Ask Him to change our hearts. Sometimes I think we need to stop trying so hard to do the right thing and spend some time trying to be the right thing. God made us human beings, not human doings. Human beings. Which means we need to change from the inside out. We need God to do heart surgery. So as we go to the table and as we sing this last song, I pray that we would start on the side of the road. Beat up, crying out for rescue. And then as you feel God rescue you and you know that he has reached down and saved you and changed your heart, let's go out and do that for others as well.